morning, church. The scripture reading today is Ephesians 2 and verses 11 to 22. I therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access and one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Grace Meridian Hill. It's been a while, but uh, I'm so glad to be back over here. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Russ Whitfield, and I am the lead pastor at your sister congregation, Grace Mosaic, over in Northeast. And so, uh, Pastor Duke, he called, I answered, and so here I am. Glad to be with you. If you would, please uh, join me for a brief word of prayer, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters, and thank you for our uh, non-Christian friends who may be gathered in here with us this morning. Uh, we're thankful that we get to um, be together this morning to think about your grace, uh, to think about the difference that Jesus makes, and we ask that you would give us clarity uh, this morning on our faith and the life that we uh, are supposed to live before you and our neighbors. So help us, Lord. Uh, we pray that this morning you would continue to draw straight lines with crooked sticks, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so not long ago, my wife Vanessa and I, uh, we started exposing our kids to one of our favorite shows from back in the day, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Yeah. All right, so we got, some, we got some folk out here who know what it is. All right. So good. So like, so listen, it's been so much fun watching my kids laugh at the things that used to crack me up, the long-running jokes I've had with all my friends who know that show. Um, but if you look at the deep structure of the Friends, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, uh, the story is all about how Will Smith slowly but surely learns how to be a part of a better family. It's, it's, a, it's a story that's all about how Will adjusts to life in a new community. Now, my understanding is that y'all have been working through the Apostles' Creed. True? Yeah. 
True. Okay, so today, Pastor Duke asked me to take up that section of the Apostles' Creed where it says that we believe in the communion of saints, which is another way of saying for modern people that the church believes in community. The church believes that God does not just do individualistic solo redemption projects. He's saving a family. He's saving a community. And all of these different metaphors of Scripture actually give us insight into what our community is supposed to be like, what our community is supposed to feel like, and what the world should be able to expect of the church. So it's deeply important for our mission as well. All these different metaphors in the Bible, the church is a building, the church is a family, the church is a body. These are all ways of giving expression to the communion of saints. But in our time for this morning, I have taken us to one of the most important passages in the New Testament. This passage is the cornerstone of Paul, the Apostle Paul's theology. Like this, this it has it all, right? And, and what he does in this passage is he begins to give us some of the contours of the communion of saints. And we're going to approach this text. I'm going to focus in, if you would, focus in with me on verse 19 of chapter 2. That's going to be our focus verse for this morning, but it's all relevant context. And we're going to approach this text through two points, where we, uh, we, we see that we need to understand our new family, and we need to acquire new sensibilities. We need to understand our new family, and we need to acquire new sensibilities, all right? So let's look at our first point, understanding our new family. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following, what you notice in this passage is that the Apostle Paul, Jewish Paul, is writing to a largely a Gentile community of Christians. And what he is doing is he's trying to minister to their needs, and he's trying to get them to understand something of the new family that they've become a part of. Now, it was very much a known fact of the Gentiles that they had been outside of the, the community of faith, the, the Jewish community of faith. God started his work in the world by sending his love on Israel. And that community grew and grew and grew, but God's vision was always that outsiders would be brought in by his people. Well, fast forward, what Paul says in Ephesians 2 is that something decisive, something objective has been accomplished by Jesus that has made two groups into one. That has made disparate groups of people into one new body, one new family, one new community, one new temple. Right? All of these are the metaphors. And so what he's trying to do is Paul will often lay down, this is an interpretive paradigm for understanding the Bible and understanding theology. One of the things that you often see in the Apostle Paul's preaching and teaching is that he will give you basically the grammar of the gospel. Now, you, you haven't taken grammar in a long time, elementary school. Indicative and imperative. The indicative is when Paul tells you something true. And the imperative is, now this is what you must do as a result of what is true. And so what Paul does in Ephesians 2 is he gives us, he begins to work out of the indicatives of what Jesus has done. What is true about what Jesus has done? By his blood, he has made one new man out of the two. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. These are the objective realities of the gospel. Then what Paul is going to do is he's going to turn and he's say, Now, live into that. Live into that truth. 
become a new body. Connect with each other in different ways. Think of each other in a new mindset. And he begins to dig in and tell us. This is what Jewish Paul says to Gentile believers. You are no longer strangers and aliens. In other words, you're not spiritual outsiders. You're not, you're not JV Christians. You're, you're not second-class citizens. You are, what does he say in the text? Members of the household of God. You are oikeoi. You are people related by kinship, and you are part of God's family. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that's important when you come to read the Bible is you need to take stock of the culture and experiences that you bring to the text that affect the way you read the Bible. Because a lot of times you bring your own culture and you can't see through your own culture and it obscures things that are true in the Bible. All right, there's an important one at work in this text this morning that we're going to get into that I think will really shed light on the communion of saints. And it's this. It all has to do with our understanding of the family. And we have to put in some work to overcome the cultural distance. Even if you come from a healthy American family or a healthy Western cultural family, there are barriers in that outlook that obscure this text. Now, here's the deal. In American family systems, the way that we think about the family is that the number one relationship in American family systems is the contractual romantic relationship between a husband and wife. In American culture, our expectation is that the closest relationship that a person can have is the relationship with their spouse. Okay? Now what we do is we bring that cultural perspective into our reading of the text and it causes us to misread what's happening in this text. Because in the first century, you were dealing with Mediterranean family systems. And in Mediterranean family systems, they operated by a principle that was known as a patrilineal family system. Patrilineal father line. It, you, you were closest with the people who were your bloodline. Now, in Mediterranean family systems, it was understood that your closest relationships were with the people who shared your blood. With your father who gave you your blood, with your siblings who shared your blood, and with your children to whom you gave your blood. That was the thinking at the time. Now, in American family systems, you may or may not be close with your siblings if you have them, but you've got to be close with your wife. So the thinking goes. In Mediterranean family systems, you may or may not be close with your spouse, but you were definitely expected to be close with your siblings. Now, do you see it? Do you see what's happening in the text? Think about the significance of what it means for Paul to say that we are fellow members of the household of God. You have God as father. We are all children. And it makes us brothers and sisters with one another. So the expectation is that when the Bible calls us brothers and sisters, it's saying something very significant. That God expects the kind of intimacy between us as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ the same kind of intimacy as what Americans expect between a husband and a wife. Isn't that interesting? There's a different cultural shade on that, which means that it ought to change the way that we think about the church. It ought to change the way that we think 
about one another. It ought to change the way that we think about showing loyalty and love to our brothers and sisters in the faith. Scripture expects this kind of connection between us. And I want to give you a little side note. A little side note as it relates to marriage. I think that one of the reasons why the institution of marriage is under such great stress today, why it is in such disrepair, why so many people are getting divorced, is because we have come to expect that all of our needs will be met by this one relationship. And we expect too much of the marriage relationship when really God's design was never that you would, we try to get from marriage what we're only ever able to get from a community of people. And then think about what this does to our unmarried brothers and sisters. I am personally, I've launched a campaign to lose the language of talking about singles. You're not single, you're just unmarried. There is no such thing as someone who is not a beloved belonger in the body of Christ. And I would never want our our unmarried brothers and sisters to think like that. But the thinking that we have around marriage often leads our unmarried brothers and sisters to believe that their life is incomplete until they find that one person to complete me. You complete me. That is such sentimental foolishness. (laughs) And if you expect that of your spouse, you will destroy your spouse. Because you will put God-sized expectations on them, and it will crush them. Just a little side note, (laughs) y'all. All right, listen. So you see what I'm saying. You see what the text is saying. What Paul is saying by calling us members of the household of God is he's giving us a new perspective on what the communion of the saints means. And guess what? He's showing you that the connection in the family of God is also... A bloodline connection. He's showing you that the blood of Christ is thicker than the ties of our families of origin. That the blood of Christ is thicker than the affinities of marital status. That the blood of Christ is thicker than the evil fiction of racial kinship. That the blood of Christ is thicker than the connection of economic equals. His blood is thicker than the patriotic pride of nationalism. His blood is thicker than the loyalties of partisan politics. His blood will never lose its power to redeem us, to connect us, to attach us, and to unite us as a family. That's the means by which we enjoy communion with one another. The dysfunctional power dynamics that are out in the world, the dysfunctional value judgments that people in the world place on their neighbors. And the relational rhythms at work out there are never meant to be given a home in God's family. You may be judged on how you perform at work, but you are never to be judged by how you perform in God's community. You might, you might be uh, considered on the lower socioeconomic ladder in the world, but in God's church, you are beloved and treasured as a co-laborer in the kingdom. Whatever the world says out there to demean and diminish others, we're supposed to be a countercultural community. Because guess what? The reason why that happens out in the world is because people do not have security. And so they have to compete with one another to put themselves above other people so that they can really feel their value and importance. But the gospel relieves you of all that. Because when you see the Son of God living the life you should have lived in your place, to credit righteousness to you you didn't earn, 
And when you see him dying on the cross to take away sins that you committed and failures of which you were guilty. And you see him rising from the dead to bring you to life. It really transforms the way that you relate to other people. You no longer have to step on people to establish your own importance and value and worth. You no longer have to compete with other people in order to have approval. If you have the approval of the only one who matters. If he accepts you, then you can deal with the temporary rejections that you face in this world. Do you see the gospel changes everything about our communal dynamics and it draws us together in love? Why? For what purpose? Because God wants to spread that love. And he wants to draw us together as a family so that we can serve together on mission so that more people can be brought into his love. So that more people can experience the liberation of Jesus. And people can experience the transformation of Jesus. And people can experience the belonging that's in Jesus. And people can experience the hope that is in Jesus in a world that is full of despair. Do you see God has given you things to give to the world? And he's giving us things to give to the world. And we'll never be able to successfully give those things to the world so long as we remain strangers in the night. So long as we struggle to find our way back to one another. You know, that's one of the most precious things about the gospel. Is that it's through the gospel that Jesus helps us to find our way back to one another. Because we've been estranged from one another ever since Genesis 3. And one of the things that Jesus has done is he's done a definitive work in the cross, in the resurrection, in order to help us to find our way back to one another. Meeting at a common center, receiving a common salvation and a common Savior. That's what the Lord wants for us. And so what you see, that this message is not only confirmed by Scripture, it's also confirmed by the history of the church. And I'm not going to hold you very long. It's a little hot in here, ain't it? All right? All right, praise the Lord. We sweating in here. Yeah. Okay. I thought some of y'all were sweating because the preaching was getting good, but now I'm realizing it's just hot in here. Okay. It's all good. All right. So listen, this is what I'm saying. If you look at scripture and you look at the history of the church, what you see is that God's church has been most compelling when it's been most communal. The church has been most missional when it's been most familial. And God's church has been most transcendent when it has been most interdependent with one another. With all of us bringing our differences, distinctions, and unique qualities to bear for the benefit of our members and those who are not yet our members. We're no longer strangers and aliens to one another nor to the kingdom. We're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And being members of the kind of family described in Scripture means that we, we need to cultivate new sensibilities, which leads us to our second point, acquiring new sensibilities. Now, by calling us fellow members of the household of God, Paul's teaching us that we belong to one another and that the big picture of what God is doing in the church and the world requires new sensibilities from us. You know how sensibilities work. It's your instincts. It's your gut. It's your, it's your, it's your pre-reflective disposition. Where you just kind of, you, you have a, a way of, of sensing the world. And you work out of your instincts and intuitions more often than you realize. And what Paul wants is for the gospel to work on your instincts, to work on your intuitions, so that you begin to relate to the family of God like you relate to your blood family if you have a healthy relationship with your blood family, okay? I know not everyone does. 
But imagine the most healthy, vibrant, joyful, life-giving, celebratory, faithful family system that you could imagine. Imagine that. Maybe we've never seen it. But that's what Paul envisions for us. And he, what he's suggesting is that it's by consuming the daily bread of the gospel that we are actually possessed of new sensibilities in terms of how we relate to our family in the church. And just, I want you to understand that it's also not lost on me that that phrase, this is a family, has often been used in some very bad ways and abusive ways in the church as a cover to just get people in line. That's not the sense in which I mean it. It's the sense in which the New Testament means it. It's just the way you think about intimacy with your brothers and sisters in, in the faith. But here's the question. What are the new sensibilities that we need to acquire in order to work out our communion, our, our life as a family in the faith? Here's what I want to suggest to you. Just very simple. It's not profound. But I, but I really believe that it's important. Many Christians find themselves in a place where they want to be wowed by theology because they think that spiritual growth and maturity is all about learning deeper theology. It's an insight-based model of discipleship. And what I think is that that's mistaken. I think we need to take a formation-based, a practice-based perspective on our discipleship, which is to say you don't measure your life of maturity and your growth in grace by how much you know, but by the practices and the habits that you have picked up that have formed the life that you live. And so what I'm proposing here, it doesn't have to be theologically deep in order for you to encounter change. Because think about it. How do you, how do you breathe? By inhaling or exhaling? Y'all alive out there? <laughs> have you stopped breathing? Okay. You breathe by inhaling and exhaling. And what I'm suggesting to you is that we change not just by the gospel getting in and change from the inside out. We also change from the outside in by taking up new practices and habits. I'm going to give you one illustration of that. Um, a couple years ago, well, it's been a while, I guess, about 2016, I felt terrible bodily because I was not taking care of myself. Um, I wasn't working out or exercising because I believed in that verse from the Bible that says the wicked run when there's no pursuer. I was not running. <laughs> so I was trying to be biblical. I was eating like there was no tomorrow, and I felt terrible. But I did not like running. I did not run. But I had a friend uh, who talked me into it. He, he was trained by an ultramarathon runner. And he said, just start, run, start, just try to run five minutes, three times a week. And then go to 10 minutes, three times a week. And then go to 15. And so I was like, all right. And the first time I went out, I was running. I was like, man, all right, I'm almost done with this five minutes. And I was like, 30 seconds, what? <laughs> so I eventually, I eventually made it through. And wouldn't you know, three months later, I was running a 5K. First time ever. I never imagined. And then a year later, I ran a half marathon. Now, I got to the point through taking up a practice that formerly I did not like and I did not enjoy. I took up that practice and over time, 
by the repetition of that practice, it actually changed my affections. It changed my heart in such a way that I would then, now when I wake up and I go through a week, I don't feel right if I don't run. I actually long to do it. I long to take care of my body. What I'm suggesting to you is this. The Christian practices operate in a similar way. It's not to the exclusion of the gospel. It's not that you can just practice your way into a changed life apart from the gospel. Uh, and and it's, it's not preaching, to the, preaching the gospel to the exclusion of the historic Christian practices that Christians always in all places at all times have always worked out. It's breathing. It's, it's inhaling the gospel, <laughs> inhaling the gospel and exhaling, working it out in new practices. So here are the new practices that I want to encourage you to take up if you haven't already. Uh, and if you're already doing these practices, maybe you think about ways that you can continue to sustain these practices, okay? So here it is. What are the new sensibilities you need to acquire? One, we share our stuff with one another. Two, we share our hearts with one another. Three, we share our futures with one another. And the fourth sensibility, family is about more than me, my spouse, and my kids. Those are the four sensibilities that I think we need to embrace in order to really live into the communion of saints, all right? So let's take these one by one. Maybe you just take a brief note of each of these to just reflect on it, think about it. You don't have to get all deep in the weeds on notes. Just think about it. We share our stuff. We share our hearts. We share our futures. And family is about more than me, my spouse, and my kids. First, we share our stuff with one another. One of the, the ideas that's basic to being a family is sharing material goods and resources. And I actually think that this is one of the strengths of Grace Meridian Hill. As I've observed your community, I have always known y'all to be very generous with your financial resources. You know, not every sermon needs to jack you up. Sometimes you need to hear from God's word, encouragement and affirmation on the things that you're already living into. So I want to encourage you to continue to live into that. Here's why. Because I already know along with Pastor Glenn and myself, I already know that Pastor Duke and all of the leaders of this community are longing for that day when our churches will be filled with neighbor, neighbors who are native D.C., where our churches will be filled with, with folks who are all across the socioeconomic spectrum. And wouldn't it be amazing if we had already acquired the sensibilities that when our neighbors come in here, we are ready to exhaust needs. We're ready to show up. We're ready to do extraordinary acts of generosity and mercy to show people just what Jesus and his church are all about. But in order to be ready for that, we need to acquire that sensibility that we share our stuff with one another. And I promise you this, there's only one time in the Bible, in all of the Bible, where God says, test me. The rest of the time, he's like a parent at the end of the week. Don't test me, right? <laughs> But there's one time where he says, test me, and it has to do with the giving of God's people. And he says, I want you to test me. Try me and see if when you give, I won't pour out a blessing on you that you don't have enough hands to hold. That I won't, I won't fill your life with such goodness that you can't even imagine it. That's the Lord's promise. And you know what? Here's the amazing thing. He struck first. You know, you know in the church growing up, where I grew up, there was this common churchism that said, when the praises go up, the blessings come down. That is a lie. <laughs> that is not true. Okay? Because why? Because it establishes this sort of quid pro quo with God. 
Like, let me just send my blessings up, my praises up, so he'll send his blessings down. Thank you. Come again. Right? Like, we just, it's transactional. But you know what? This is the good news of God's story. The blessing already came down. His name is Jesus. And that's why the praises ought to go up. And here's the deal. Not only did the greatest blessing of God already come down, but God promises more in addition. He promises to bless you with his peace. He promises to bless you with his comfort. He promises to bless you with his security. And yes, he promises to meet your needs for daily bread. He will provide for you. And one of the greatest acts of faith, one of the greatest ways to bear witness to our non-Christian neighbors is to pour out generosity. And when they say, what are you doing? How are you going to survive? You can say, he is a good, good father. That's who, right, right? You have an opportunity to say, yeah, you know what? I can understand how this seems crazy to you. But I believe that God is real and that his promises are true. And that when we extend ourselves for the benefit of others, he will always meet our needs. That's Jesus himself. Don't you think Jesus is great? Who's going to say, no, Jesus is not great? Right? Like everyone in our culture, yeah, Jesus is pretty cool, right? Even if they have a pop version and not the real fool Jesus of Scripture, everyone's going to resonate. And you say, you know what Jesus said one time? He said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And I'm really trying to live into that. We share our stuff with one another. Next, we share our hearts with one another, which is to say that we let one another in. And we share the burdens, the trials, the sufferings, the failures, the sins, the joys, the pains, the sunshine, and the rain. Frankie Beverly and Mays, amen. All right. So what this, is, this is what psychologists call affective solidarity, which is to say we live in solidarity with our brothers and sisters emotionally in terms of our love and our affections. It's this emotional attachment. There's an affective sense of closeness and intimacy that the Spirit weaves between brothers and sisters in Christ who live together in vulnerability. Okay? Because the church is supposed to be different from out there, like we've already said. And you may not feel free to share your weaknesses out there, but you ought to feel very free to share your weaknesses in here. And in here, when people share their weaknesses, they ought to experience us as tender, compassionate, merciful, life-giving counselors who always point back to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Not just for forgiveness, but for transformation. Because God does not, when God comes to find you, he doesn't leave you where you are. He brings you into the place of flourishing and he leads you back home. So that's what we're supposed to be for one another. And I want, I want us to grow all the more in this way. Weeping with those who weep. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. And listen, if we want to get very specific and concrete, one of the ways that we can get into this. Now, this is important. In, in cross-cultural community, we have to be able to have these real, honest, vulnerable conversations. And if you look over the last few years, one of the things that you've noticed that is missing in the body of Christ is that a lot of our white brothers and sisters in majority culture have not lived in affective solidarity with their black, brown, and AAPI brothers and sisters who have experienced sufferings and who have said that they're experiencing injustices. And think about what that has done to the body of Christ. But contrast that with the vision of what it would look like if we lived in affective solidarity. Even if we disagree on causes, we're not talking about politics here. This ain't got nothing to do with critical race theory, by the way, public service announcement. This ain't got nothing to do with that. And most people who throw that out try to use it as a smokescreen to avoid the clear teachings of Scripture. To love justice, to, to do mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, right? That's, this is absolutely clear. That the Good Samaritan, 
That God, Jesus, has been the good Samaritan to us, and he calls us to be a new community of new Samaritans toward those who are laying on the side of the road half dead, not trying to figure out whether they deserve our love, not trying to figure out if they're worthy of our time, not trying to figure out if we should spend any time with them. No, living out of the fact that Jesus loved us. Now think about it, envision it. What would, it, what would these last couple years have looked like if we all lived in affect of a solidarity with one another? It would have been a very different story, right? It would have been a different story. I'm not trying to shame anybody. Um, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to clearly identify specific sites where you see this breakdown. And I'm trying to help you to catch a new vision for how we could recover it. Because listen, there was a time where in the ancient world, when people were traveling around the world, when they were on a journey, there was no Motel 6. There was no Holiday Inn. And ancient people, regardless of their religious affiliation, they were looking for a church or a monastery because they knew they would find refuge. They knew they would experience welcome. They knew that they would be protected, that they would be nourished, and that they would leave with more than they came with. That was the reputation of the church. Now, that's not our reputation anymore, is it? But what if we could recover that perspective? What if we could recover that reputation? You see that fly? The devil be busy out here. Wow. Okay, what if we could recover that? That fly landed right here on my head. You see that? That ain't right. Devil always getting busy out here. All right, <laughs> look. Back people when I grew up, they used to blame the devil for diabetes. They'd be like, oh, my sugar's acting up. Devil's busy. I'd be like, I think you're just eating too much candy, right? <laughs> but what I'm saying to you is this. Imagine what it could be like for Grace Meridian Hill and the Grace DC Network to recover that reputation in our place of being a community of refuge, of being a community of just extraordinary hospitality. Imagine if our neighbors were confident that when they came to us, they would be protected, they would be well cared for, and that they would leave with more than they came with. That's something to aspire to, but I think it requires that we share our hearts with one another and that we get ready because our community, this community is, is filled with extraordinarily gifted, brilliant people. I know who y'all are. Incredible folks. It's amazing. Pastor Duke and I talk about these things from time to time. It amazes us that we get to be your cheerleaders, right, in the good work that you're doing on the front lines. But we have to share our hearts with one another, and we need to let one another know that this is a safe context in which to share your weaknesses. You don't have to be strong all the time. You don't have to project competence all the time. This is a safe place. Next, we share our futures with one another. This is to say that we share our decision-making process with our community before we arrive at a conclusion. Before we arrive at a conclusion. You know how much your pastors in, in, in your community want to be involved in your decision-making process? Not to try and just manipulate you and convince you to stay in D.C., but to really help you to discern what God is calling you to. Right now, I, I can't tell you uh, how many times I've had people come to me with a sort of fait accompli, right? Like they, they'd already made up their minds and it was like a sort of like afterthought. Oh, by the way, we're leaving. And I was like, hmm, okay. Thanks for letting me know after the fact. I mean, it would have been really great to be able to be your pastor as you were processing through this. And they were like, oh, yeah. Actually, what do you think about it? And I'm like, seems great. Be encouraged, right? Like whatever, right? But 
Nah, because I don't know all the details, right? If you don't know, you can't provide counsel. Why is this important? Because we need to get over the delusion that we really can make sound decisions all by ourselves. And this is just a simple little thought experiment to help you realize it. What do you think, let me ask you, each of you, just imagine for a moment. Um, what do you think about the decision-making capacities of the six-year-old you? Dumb, right? Okay, got it, cool. What do you think about the decision-making capacities of the 16-year-old you? Even dumber, right? Right? <laughs> what about the 20-year-old you? I mean, still green, right? Then know much about life. Probably still don't know how to balance a checkbook, right? What about the 30-year-old you? What would the 40-year-old you say about the 30-year-old you? What would the 50-year-old you say about the 40-year-old you? What would the 60-year-old you? Is there ever a point in your life at which you would be able to make sound decisions by yourself? I think wisdom says no. And so the invitation is to share with your brothers and sisters. Be vulnerable enough to trust people and let them in and expect that they are seeking your good and they are seeking to help you discern God's calling rather than try and force you into a mold of their own making. Okay? That's the idea of sharing our futures with one another. we got to share our futures with one another because this is the relational frame of reference for brothers and sisters. Think about it. If, if the Bible expects the kind of intimacy between brothers and sisters that we expect between spouses, could you imagine making a major life decision, married people, without including your spouse? Hey, babe, just want to let you know, bought a new house the other day. What? What is wrong with you? Are you kidding me right now? You would have, there would be some furniture moving in your house, right? Like there would be a misunderstanding right there, right? It would turn into conflict. Why? Because your spouse would be hurt that you made such a major decision without including them if they're supposed to be super close to you. Same thing in the family of God. Finally, finally, and I'm, I'm landing right here. Family is about more than me, my spouse, and my kids. We need to cultivate that sensibility. Remember, married people, your marriage was not designed to meet all of your relational needs. And it's unfair to expect for your spouse to meet all of your relational needs that can only be met by a broader community called the church. And I think this is, uh, this is an important way for us to really include our unmarried brothers and sisters. I can personally attest to you that one of the richest years in the life of my family is when we had uh, our dear sister, Ashley Williams, who's our ministry coordinator over at Grace Mosaic, we had her live with us for a year. One of the richest years in our family life, truly. Like, I, it was amazing. She, she left on her own accord, and our kids mutinied, right? They loved her. Like, she became Auntie Ashley in a year, right? Chain, it, it affected my relationship with my wife, Vanessa. And our lives are all the richer because she was with us. And I just want to encourage you as a community to be creative about the various ways that we can tighten and deepen and enrich our communal life together. Why? Because at the end of the day, y'all, what's the communion of saints all about? Why does it matter? Why is it important to God? Here's why. Because what Jesus teaches us in John 17 is that the Lord has hitched his reputation to our life together. In other words, his reputation with our non-Christian neighbors 
is deeply shaped by the quality of our life together. Theologian Christine Pohl in, in her book on community said, and I quote, the greatest testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. Do you want to bear witness to our neighbors here in Columbia Heights, in Petworth, Adams Morgan? Do we? Doesn't sound like you do. Do we? Okay, good. Well, one of the greatest ways we can contribute to that is by leaning in to this body, leaning into this community, knowing that everything that you do to strengthen this community is not in vain. It all ultimately works toward mission, witness, and the joy of seeing our neighbors come to know the saving love of God and Jesus Christ. We believe in the communion of saints. And by the grace of God, we will live like a communion of saints. So let us ask the Lord to give us grace, to help us to return to the gospel again and again for our true nourishment, and to take up the new practices and to form the habits that really give expression to this life of love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We are grateful. I thank you for the Grace Meridian Hill community. Lord, thank you for all the good work that they've done. Thank you for all the meals that have been delivered to people in need. Thank you for all the mercy and relief that has come to the neighbors through this community. Lord, thank you for all of the prayers that were lifted up to invite your power into what seemed like hopeless situations. Thank you for the bonds of love in this church. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them all the more to walk in this way of love, to live this life of connection with one another. Help them to remember that the Christian life is a community project and that there are many things we can do by ourselves, but being Christians isn't one of those things. Lord, help us to love each other, to pray for each other, to forgive each other, to confess to each other and repent to each other, to love one another and serve one another, to bless one another with our words, to encourage each other. Help us to be a sweet taste for our neighbors of the love and the joy that is in Jesus. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.